So we're in Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, right at the beginning. So, um, today is like a theology class. Theology 101. You didn't know, but you came to seminary today. So, um, first day of class, the basics, the most basic truths ever that every believer should know. Every believer should know basic doctrine about who God is, right? So that's what we're doing today. So be ready. Get your minds geared. Put your thinking caps on. Pay close attention. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we need your help as we talk about a complex issue, but one of great fascination and value for us. It's the way John wants us to begin thinking about the gospel of Jesus that he wrote for us. So we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. All right, there is nothing more worthy of contemplation, thinking about, than the nature and the character of God himself. He's the creator and the center of everything. God is not a man, a, a big man upstairs that we turn to every now and then. He, he created the universe. He's the center of all things. Everything depends upon him. You depend upon him for every breath you take. He's everything. It's his universe. It's his world. And we're entirely dependent on him for our very existence. So to know him and to learn about him is actually the highest thing a human mind can do to think about God. Well, how can we know anything about him? He's, I don't see him. He's invisible. How do, how do we know about him? Well, in part, we know from creation. I mean, you can look at creation and understand quite a bit about God. Aspects of the creator are seen in what he has made. Creation tells us how powerful God is, obviously. How infinitely vast he is. All you have to do is look at the universe and try to figure out just how big it really is. He's bigger than that. We see how brilliant he is in the design of nature and the careful balancing of powers and forces that are the laws of nature and the intricate design of so many creatures like us, but all the other creatures in the world, how brilliant God is. God is also an artist. He infuses creation, not just with technical, functional um, wonders, mechanical wonders, if you will, biological wonders, but great beauty everywhere we turn in nature. Beautiful creatures, beautiful experiences. Most of all though, we learn about God by how he made us in creation because we are made in, good. You guys already passed theology one, that's great. <laughs> yeah, we're made in the image of God so we can look at ourselves and learn some things about him from ourselves, right? Some things. We know, for example, that God is a moral being. He cares about right and wrong because we do. In fact, that's one of the unique things about human beings that is different from all the animals. We can't help but think in terms of right and wrong. Good and bad. Moral good and moral evil. Even evil people think that way. They just don't think that way about other people. But if you wrong them, they get really upset with you. And it's wrong what you did to me, right? So they think that way too. Very debased people might only think about it in regard to themselves, but they do feel like you've wronged them if you wrong them. And people can descend so low, they have a seared conscience. I mean, they never think about how they wrong other people, but they do think about how people wrong them. So 
We have this inescapable sense of morality that comes from our being made in the image of God. So he is a moral being and we can tell that because we're moral beings made in his image. We can also learn about um, God from the way he has made us in terms of other aspects of us. We reason. He reasons, right? So the things that are uniquely special about us, those are things that God has in a higher and greater way than we do. Now there's things we can't know. There's things about God that we cannot know from creation itself. But some of those things we can know by, here's another word, revelation. So if God reveals truth to humanity about things that we can't just discern from how the universe is made or how we're made, then he tells us, he communicates to us in other ways. So last week we talked about how God gave us and only us on this earth, the ability to reason and to think and to discover and to study. Well, part of that is he gave us this ability to think and to communicate in language. So he communicates to us in language. Language. (laughs) That's how God communicates to us. And of course, the greatest revelation of God ever to humanity is his son. So that's the, that's the high point. So we look at Christ and we see God in him and we learn about God through him. So John introduces him in John chapter 1 verse 1 as the word. And that's what we talked about last time. The logos, the word. Most of what we did last time was talking about John using that title in his prologue. Why he chose that word, word. But now we're ready to move on beyond the very first words of this prologue and in verse 1 as well into the next part. So the first part was what? In the beginning was the word, word, right? So now it's time to talk about the doctrine that makes Christianity very unique. And that's our subject for today. And that's the word Trinity, the Trinity, okay? (laughs) There's one God, only one God, but he coexists in three eternal persons. God is three and one. The Trinity is not something you can learn about from nature. There's no Trinities in nature. I know people try, you know, they try to say, oh, well, it's like uh, water. It can be water, it can be ice, it can be steam, but that's not the Trinity. Um, St. Patrick supposedly used a a shamrock to tell people there's three in one. See, it's one flower, it's got three. But none of those things really fit. There's no natural analogies to the Trinity at all. It can only come by revelation. God has to tell us. And both the Bible... And the direct coming of Jesus Christ as a man are forms of revelation. But since we didn't live when Jesus came, we're kind of relying on the word, right? So uh, the word that records what Jesus said. So now let me just stop for a minute and address the main argument because there are people that (coughs) deny the Trinity. And we'll come back to those a little bit later too. But one of the big arguments against it is that, and I've sat down with people and this is what they'll say. And it sounds very reasonable at first. They say, It's basic math, buddy. One plus one plus one isn't one. (laughs) It's three. And then if I was being sarcastic, I would say one times one times one is three. I mean, is one, not three. But but that doesn't, it's not a mathematical issue, so neither of those things matter. You can't have one God in three persons is what they would say based on that idea. If you have three persons who are God, they would say you've got three gods, right? I mean, that's what they would argue. But that argument is based on the fact that in our world, we don't see anything like that. But is God higher than our world? 
Is he, is he above us in some way? Um, we are tiny, limited creatures. We are made in the image of God. We share certain qualities he has. We can reason, but we don't know everything. We don't know even basic things about the universe. We're still learning all the time about even creation. But for, the, for us to say, oh, I can grasp the creator with my little tiny mind. No, you can't. So if he reveals something to us, then that's the truth of it and that's what really matters. Everyone who believes in the God of the Bible believes that time and space are aspects of creation, right? Is God bound by time and space? No, he's above it, right? He's beyond it. God can be anywhere at any time that he wants to be. His presence is everywhere. And you can't really comprehend that. We can't understand God, we can't understand God living in the ever-present now for him. We can't imagine a single being who had no beginning. Who, who was God before creation? What was going on with him? What was he doing before he, what did he do before he created everything? What's it like being God eternally before there was a creation? What's it like? We can't even imagine it. We don't know. And that doesn't mean it's not true that he existed before creation. Obviously, he was the creator, right? So it does mean that um, there are things above our ability to grasp. It's outside of our reasoning capacity. So it's not irrational to believe in one God than three persons. It's just supra-rational. It's above our capacity to reason, okay? In fact, I actually expect that God, the infinite God, would be different than what a human mind could come up with, that he would be more than that. And he, he reveals himself as more than that. So it's not a problem for me to think that God is above us, infinitely above us. So we can't know everything about him. We can't. He's too vast, too different in, in those ways. But we can make true statements about him because he has revealed things to us. And that's what we're dealing with here. So even though we cannot grasp infinite realities, we can know something about them. You know, Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he said, the secret things belong to the Lord. You know that verse? The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. So God reveals things that we don't know. We accept what God says, even if it's above us, up there somewhere. So what has God revealed in his word about his triune nature? Well, the Trinity's taught in a lot of different places, but you know what? The foundation for it is nowhere more clear than here in the first verse of John's gospel. That's where the essence of it you can see right away. And although John 1.1 only addresses the Father and the Son, it's the clearest statement we have on the unity of God. God is one, and yet there's a relationship between persons going on there. So this is it. So last time we noted in John 1.1 that there were these three declarations, declarative statements built around a tiny little verb and the verb is was, right? We'll talk more about that in a minute. There's the word was and then there's a proper noun and the proper noun is the word. So the word, statement one, in the beginning was the word. Statement two, the word was with God. Statement three, and the word was God. The whole Trinity thing's right there. So let's look at these three declarations a little bit more closely. In the beginning was the word, statement one. One thing I didn't mention last time about the nature of that verb was, in the beginning was the word. 
It's in the past tense, and I said that, but it's actually, Greek has different past tenses, and this past tense is called imperfect. So it's looking at the past, but not at a point in time. It's looking at a continuous action or an unfinished action in the past. And if we're using it about a person, then it's talking very uniquely about a person there. So it's a continuous or unfinished action, sort of like this. When the storm hit, we were playing softball. So we were playing would be a past imperfect. Something was going on. It wasn't like a moment, but something was going on when the storm hit. It's used like that. That's, how, that's what the verb is like. So it's um, past imperfect. That's what the tense is. So we're in the middle of something. We were playing, and it's expressing that continuous action. So if you say in the beginning was the word, well, was is not an action. It's a verb of being, right? I, I am or he is or, you know. It's to be, it's the verb to be. So if you use an imperfect tense with being, then you're talking about a continuous existence. You're not talking about a moment in time there. Does that make sense? Okay, hang with me. <laughs> so in the beginning was the word, says that in the beginning the word already was. So he's not in the beginning. And the statement in verse 3, just look at verse 3 real quick confirms this because it separates the word, the logos, from everything else in creation. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. So nothing exists that the word didn't create. That means he is the uncreated creator, right? So he's the eternal God with no beginning and with no end. Colossians chapter 1, Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says exactly the same thing. By him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So he's not created. He is the creator. He's the source and he precedes all created things, right? So the word is not a created being. He's the creator of everything. He's not another God. He's the one person of the triune God. He's one of the three persons. And he had no beginning. In the beginning, he was. So John will not allow the thought, just by his own language here, he will not allow the thought that Christ had a beginning, that there was a time when he wasn't. He's always been. And he shows us that with these contrasting verbs. Now, I gave you a little handout in your bulletin. And it's got little yellow and blue on it. What is that for? That is to talk about two verbs. One of the verbs, if you look at the yellow, is the word was, right? That's the one we've been talking about. Imperfect tense, the word to be or he is. You know, it's the, a verb of being. The blue... That's the verb you use. It's called egenata, egenata. So here's your Greek lesson. Ain, two letters, ain, say that, ain. That's the word was. Egenata, let's say that, egenata. That's the word in blue. Everybody see that? All the uses of the word was, which are yellow, are the exact same verb that you see three times in verse one. Imperfect tense, continuous action in the past, right? All of the verbs highlighted in blue are some form of the verb 
agenita, which means, it can mean a lot of things, but it always refers to something as happening in a point in time, right? And, and these are the other examples. Look at verse 3 there. It's used three times. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So three times he says everything else had a beginning, right? Came into being at a point in time. Verse 6, he's talking about the coming of John the Baptist. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. Very clear, right? Simple. In fact, it would be a very different Bible if it said, in the beginning was John the Baptist. In the beginning was a man named John. You won't see that because the suggestion there is he's eternal. He's always existed in the past. So it doesn't say that. He came. He came upon the scene. God brought him forth at a certain time. He was born and grew up and all of that. Verse 10, it's talk about creating the world again. He was in the world and the world was made. That's exactly the same verb. Again, it's just translated a little bit differently there, was made through him. There's a time when it began. Verse 11, Jesus is starting his ministry. He, the word, came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So he came, but he came to his own people. That was at a point in time. Then verse 14, the greatest of all miracles, of all miracles, the word became, again, became flesh. So there was a point in time when the eternal word who was at the beginning, who's eternal, became flesh. He became a human being. You see how that works? So John is laying out those verbs for you so that you can see that the son always existed. He had no beginning. Everything else had a beginning. God became a man. So there was a time when the word became, but it was not in the beginning. The word had no beginning. The word is eternal. The word simply was okay but when it was time for him to reveal God to us to explain God to us and bear the penalty of our sins then he came and became just what we needed at just the right point in time the word became flesh so in time he added our humanity to his divinity and won our freedom from condemnation got it okay now Let's take the next two declarations of John 1.1 1, 1 together because that is where the mystery of the Trinity is found. Of all the declarations are built on the verb was, right? Continuous past. So statement two, the word was with God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. Statement three, the word was God. So the mystery, of course, is how do those things come together? How do they belong together? So when theologians are creating theology they're taking everything scripture has to say about a certain topic and bringing them together and making a statement based on the truth of all of it in one place so with God is a statement of relationship so with is a little word it has a variety of meanings as well it's a Greek word pros usually it's translated with or, or uh, sometimes it's with some, usually it's toward or to it's the word for two, like we're going to the store, you know, that kind of an idea. But when it's used with people, it's a relationship word. I was with somebody. Let me give you an example. Mark 6, 3, um, the gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, talking about Jesus, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? Same word. These are people that are with us. There's a relationship thing going on there. 
They are here with us, but they're not us. They're not saying his sisters are him, right? They are with us. Luke chapter 5 verse 30, the Pharisees asked Jesus, why do you eat, his disciples, they asked the disciples, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Why are you in the same room with them? Why are you interacting with them? Why are you hanging out with sinners? So it's a relational word, right? So pros, it says in the presence of, or it implies fellowship with, it involves at least two people when you use that word. So the word, the logos, the, the being who made everything and who will become flesh in verse 14, this word has a relationship with God, right? It's very simple. It's so clear. In the beginning, that relationship already existed. Now for the third declaration. And the word was God. With God and was God. That is as clear as grammar can get it. To, to see, say that Jesus is an individual purpose from the fa- person from the Father and a different person, but he's there, God is the Father and Christ is, the, is God as well. They're both God. So the word didn't become God. That would have been a genita, a beginning. The word became God. It could have said something like that, but it doesn't. The word was God, right? So with God and was God. Both are true, but now here's the question. How can, be one, how can that happen? How can you be one with God? with God and be God at the same time. And that's where we're talking about reason. It's not unreasonable to postulate that both persons, that one God is two persons, at least. We know it's three persons. Later on in John, he gets all into the Holy Spirit and brings him in. But right now we're talking about the Father and the Son. It's not irrational. It's just super rational. It's above our reason to understand that. But it is revealed by God. And that's the other way we know things. It's revealed right here. There's one God, but there's more than one person that is God. So we rejoice in the truth of the Trinity. It's an incredible doctrine. And if you're a Christian and you got baptized, that's why you got baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? It's so important. It's central. And Jesus commanded that we be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. While we can't penetrate the mysteries of the Trinity because we're these little tiny beings we can think about it we can think of the glory of it the beauty of it the beauty of God's existence as Father Son and Holy Spirit the relationship they have with each other we can think a little bit about that we can get glimpses in scripture of the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity and we really see that when Jesus and other scriptures as well talk about the unique roles of the different persons of the Trinity and uh, especially in God's interaction with human beings. For example, John chapter 3, verse 34. You can look at that, that if you want to, but it says, he's talking about himself. Jesus says, um, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So first we see that Jesus as a man has the Holy Spirit. There's the Spirit right there. Without measure. So although he is righteous as a man, Jesus relied on the Spirit for power every day. He also relied on him for communication with the Father. He relied on him for the things that the Father wanted him to do and teach. The Spirit taught him, told him, communicated to him what the Father wanted. Jesus is a perfectly obedient man to the Father. 
He follows the Father's will. He says he doesn't do anything on his own initiative. John chapter 8 verse 28. I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. So even Jesus' teaching is from the Father, right? So we see that in every way. The Father has a role that is unique. He's the sender. And Jesus is the sent, right? He's the one that was sent. The Son was sent. Now, here's the big question when you're talking about the Trinity. Could it have been the other way around? Could it have been the other way around? Could the Son have sent the Father? I don't think so. So in God, among the three persons, you get a very strong impression from all of Scripture that the Father has always been the Father and the Son has always been the Son. In fact, I think God invented fathers and sons to give a picture of what their relationship is actually like. Because remember, God designed everything and he planned all this out, right? So God chose the relationship, the language of relationship, father to son, to reveal something about the nature of the relationship between the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity. And it's interesting that we always call the father the first person of the Trinity because he has some sense, there's some sense of priority about him. Not in time, he didn't exist before the son. But in the relationship, there's some sense of him having the first place. So the father sins, the son is sent and follows the father's plans. And that's why the father is called the first person. In some sense, he has first place. And the son, in some sense, we call him the second person of the Trinity. In fact, in Christian theology, it has always seen the son. This is the language that theologians use. The son is eternally begotten of the father. There's some sense of the father being the priority and the son is always begotten of him eternally. There's no time when it happened. There was nothing before. God is infinite and eternal and the son is always begotten of the father every moment. And you can kind of see it in John chapter 17. So Jesus gave this wonderful prayer to the disciples. You can see the um, nature of the relationship here. And Jesus said in verse 4, John 17, 4, Praying to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So it's the glory he had with the Father before he became flesh. But it's not the glory the Father had with him. It's the glory he had with the Father, right? So even analogies in Scripture suggest in some sense that the Father has this priority place. Hebrews chapter 1, we read it this morning earlier in the service. It's a classic passage on the full divinity of the Son. He's God. He's worshipped as God by the angels. He is God. But it says in Hebrews 1, 3, that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, the radiance of his glory. And so representation is sort of out from the father. He's the representation of the father. And the radiance of his glory. His glory is sort of the center and he's the radiance of it. You know the son is the radiance of the father's glory. Would it ever be appropriate to say in eternity past. That the father is the radiance of the son's glory. I don't think so. So again there's some sense of the father being central or, the, or first. And even with light, light, you can't separate light from the radiance of the light. They're the same 
substance, like God is one substance, there's one God, but the radiance isn't exactly the same as the light either. It's what's coming forth from the light. So that's sort of an eternal relationship that the Father and the Son have. So when we talk about Christ, is he the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature only when he became flesh or was that an eternal condition? Well, Christian theologians believe that was an eternal condition based on all these scriptures we're talking about. It always seems to point to an eternal relationship between the father and the son. The son receives from a father, from the father in, in a way that the father does not receive from the son. But there's one God, one divine essence that is God. And that's about as far as human language could go to express all of this. God's nature, it's above us. But if you wind back to uh, John chapter 3 verse 34, which I read a little bit ago, there's another aspect of the relationship between the Father and the Son that tells us quite a bit, I think. We see in John 33:34 that the relationship between the Father and the Son is one of love. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So for one thing, if the Father gives all things into the hand of the Son, the Son is just as big and powerful and God as God is. Because all things have been given to him by the Father. But also the Father loves the Son. And I think when we understand this, we can also see how love is the essential part of the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. It's a love relationship. And as I think about it, the very existence of love depends on the reality of the Trinity. If God were one being, then before he made everything, what is love or where is love? But since God is love, as John says in 1 John, God is love, there must have been some love going on. He must have been expressing love in eternity past. And he was with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. They, they have an eternal love relationship with each other. So I think the Trinity, I believe in the Trinity because it's biblical, but it also fits what we know about God. God is love and he's eternally loving someone. Well, he's loving the Son. So that makes perfect sense to me. How is love a part of God's nature apart from or before he created anything to love? Well, there was something to love. There was someone to love and that's the word, the logos, his son. He's always existed. Love has always existed between the three persons of the Trinity. Therefore, love has always been a part of God's nature and is always, there's always been someone to love for him. So it's eternally, God is eternally communicating himself in love to the son and to the spirit. And now us, too, as we see this incredible sacrifice that Christ made for our salvation. So to me, God's love as a key component of who God is supports the idea that even in eternity past, that love had an object that was also eternal as well. Okay, now, I'd better give you a definition of the Trinity. So <laughs> I'm just going to use our doctrinal statement. This is what it actually says. We're getting there, guys. Just hang on. Our doctrinal statement reads like this and it's based on all the classic um, statements of the Christian religion. We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite intelligent spirit, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence and love. That's who God is and that's what we owe him. That, it's not done yet. In the unity of God, there are three persons, all infinite, without beginning, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
equal in every divine perfection and here's kind of a key phrase executing distinct and harmonious offices in regard to the great work of redemption. What does that mean? Distinct and harmonious offices. Different jobs but working together harmonious in the work of redemption. In other words the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit have different roles in our salvation. That's what that means. And you can see it really clearly. I'm not going to read it this morning because it's long. But if you read Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 14. It talks about what the Father's role is in our salvation. What the Son's role is in our salvation. And what the Holy Spirit's role is in our salvation in detail. And at the end of each section it says to the praise of his glory. To the praise of the Father's glory. To the praise of the Son's glory. To the praise of the Spirit's glory. Now. Let me finish by briefly talking about two common errors. They're on the back of your little handout there. Two common errors that people make about un in understanding the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Mike earlier this morning brought up one of those. They're both ancient errors. They go way back um, to early church history but they show up time, time and again throughout history. Both are around today. So uh, the first is called Arianism on your list here on your handout. It's Sabellianism is the first one. But look at the second one there. Arianism that comes from a teacher named guess what? Arius that was his name. <laughs> surprise surprise. He was born about in the middle of the third century about 250 AD something like that. Arius said that Jesus the son of God was God like but not God. Not the eternal God. Jesus was the highest creation of God. He's the first creature Many people believe that today including some very poorly taught Christians. But um, Jehovah's Witnesses are the most famous group running around today that believe that. They push that very hard. They are modern day Arians. In fact I got a phone call the other day. This guy said I noticed in your doctrinal statement there on your church website that you believe in blah 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 about the Trinity and stuff like this. Well uh, why do you believe that? Anyway he, start, he was a Jehovah's Witness guy trying to witness to me and trying to use Greek in a really sloppy way. But he was trying to persuade me that Christ was so anyway we talked for a while then I said oh you're a Jehovah's Witness okay so um, <laughs> as soon as he read from Colossians and added the word where it says Jesus created all things and he read it it said created all other things I knew he was a Jehovah's Witness because that's what their Bible says they literally took the word other and just stuck it in the Bible because it's not there and, and he knew that he knew it wasn't in the Greek text but he, he so I caught him I caught him in an error anyway that's the first error Arianism the second error is called Sabellianism. Guess where that comes from? A guy named? Sibelius. Good. Sibelius. Yeah. That's right. So um, that's called modalism frequently. It's the idea that God is one person but he appears in different forms. Different, he has different roles he plays in salvation. Sometimes he's the father. Sometimes he's the son. And sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. But there's one person. He's kind of wearing different masks at different times. Or as we might say in our culture. Wearing a different hat. You know. I've got my son hat on today. That kind of a thing. Um, so they would say you can't have one God in three persons. That's impossible. So there's only one God. Right. But he appears in different ways. Now the early Pentecostal movement that started in the 1920s in America it actually started here Pentecostalism there was a, about a third of the early Pentecostals were modalists and they're still around but they're just not as large as they were back in those days they're called United Pentecostals or or Jesus only Pentecostals sometimes they call themselves that T.D. Jakes if you ever heard of him he's a very popular Christian writer or, or, or heretic writer I should say but he he believes that so um, he's a Sabellian modalist Pentecostal preacher. 
So it's pretty easy to refute modalism. I mean, that's really easy because, you know, all you got to go to Matthew chapter 3 and look at the end, read the story of the baptism of Jesus and what's going on there. Right? Jesus is in the water. He comes up out of the water. The heavens are opened. A dove descends upon Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. He's coming down on Jesus. And then a voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus isn't jumping back up into heaven and saying that. And, uh, you know, it's three, three persons are there. It's all going on right in the same place, same time. You can't, so modalism, that doesn't work too well. Now the Arians, the Ari- Arianism, back to that other one. The belief that Jesus was a God-like creature, but not the eternal God. They rely very heavily on this one plus one plus one is not one idea. In other words, I can't imagine it or it doesn't fit in my mind. It's not logical to me, so it can't be true. But there again, I can't imagine you just say, explain infinity to me. How, how, how is God an, an infinite person? How is he everywhere at once? What is that actually like? Well, you can't do that. You can't really comprehend that. How is God timeless? What does that mean, timeless? Right? So Arianism fails because of just so many clear scriptures that present Jesus as God, many of which are in John's gospel, which we'll be getting to in the future. But there are so many places in the Old Testament where God says, I am the Lord. I am this, and there's no one else that does this. And then the New Testament says Jesus does exactly the same thing. So there's many of those, many of those. I won't go through them with you, but we don't have time today. We did it in Sunday school not too long ago. But many times, things that are only true of God are applied to Jesus. To, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. That's from the Old Testament. That's God talking. And the New Testament in Philippians says that's for Jesus. That's him. That's about him. So that's very common. But I think the clearest text of all the texts there are about Jesus being God to refute the Arians is right in front of our face. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So Martin Luther, the great reformer, he pointed out that this one verse, John 1, 1, he said, the very first words of John's gospel knocks out Arianism and Sabellianism with one stroke. It's just like, the word was God, Arius can't be right. The word was with God, Sibelius can't be right. That's what he said. Both errors are undone with just a few simple words, with God and was God. Whole theologies built are thrown away because of those simple words. Was God with God. So one verse, John's first verse, not only reveals something unique and wonderful about the Logos, the Son of God, but in just a few simple words, he squashes these other wrong views of God before they even show up. To me, that's masterful. It's almost like he was inspired when he was writing this, right? <laughs> so if John began his gospel with, in the beginning came the word, again, Atoff, he did that, then the Arians would be right. But he didn't. If John said the word was God, but never said the word was with God, then the modalists would be right. The Sibelians would be right. If he didn't say he was with God, they might be right. But they're not right. Because John said in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Masterful, simple, glorious truth. Right there. So John's prologue, the first 18 verses of the gospel, are a guide into the mysteries regarding the nature of God and what he's like. We will never understand all of it. I don't think even in heaven we'll understand all of it because we'll still be creatures and he's still the creator and infinite. We'll we'll never be infinite. But what has been revealed to us 
is for us to think about and wonder at and rejoice in. And that's how I feel about the Trinity. It's a delight to know that our Savior is the eternal God and our Creator became the Savior. You can't get better than that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and the beauty of it, the wonder of it. We celebrate the unity of persons in the Godhead, Lord. Help us to receive what you have revealed and delight in it. You're a great God. And as we move forward in John's text, we'll learn more and more about you and more and more about your son, the word who became flesh. We thank you and we pray that you would help us through our time together as we study and to take this to heart so that we can pray with confidence and know that you are there for us in every way. You've provided everything for us through what you've done in your son. In his name we pray, amen.